Well, good morning. A lot going on this morning. Um, would you turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33? If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to use a Blue Pew Bible. Uh, it's page 73 in there. Um, I look forward to this particular Sunday, this weekend after Labor Day, for uh, several reasons. But one of the reasons is that we as a church kind of create space at the beginning of another ministry year to refocus our own eyes, to refocus on our eyes for God's plan for the church and just collectively as a church try to get our hearts stirred for why we do what we do. Um, And this week, we do this every year, we've done this probably our fifth year, uh, but this year it's just going to be two weeks, and that's shorter than past years. And the reason is that on September 22nd, uh, Lord willing, we are going to begin preaching through the book of Philippians. And um, if you know that book, it happens to be Paul's most kind of joy-filled letter to a church because the church is healthy and it's growing. And so we're going to kind of preach two weeks on why a church exists and then dive into a study of what a healthy church looks like for the next nine weeks after that. But that's where we're going. And I thought it would be a good segue to start with a verse of where we just were. We just spent all summer in the book of Proverbs looking at the way of wisdom and Proverbs 29, 18 says this, where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. Paraphrase, um, things go off the rails when there's no clear vision in place. And, and a vision, we all know it's not exclusive to the church. Your companies have visions and your schools have visions. Maybe you have a, your own personal vision. Um, but I think it's most important in the context of the local church. And any great vision, if you think about what's a good vision statement, any great vision has two components. It's a motivation that leads to movement, right? Motivation that puts you on the move. And it's the hope of a church, that our church is Grace Church, that at its core we are a movement, amen? Like we're not just a set of doctrines, although we love doctrine and theology here at Grace Church. And it's not just the place, but we love and are grateful for this place that we congregate each week. But it's a movement. We are a people moving together. Motivation and movement. And so the first question that any church has to answer when it talks about vision is why? Oftentimes, I think especially in churches, we get so focused on what we're going to do. We want to share what we're going to do. and We're going to share how we're going to do it. We talk a lot about forms and structures and those are important. But we can't start there. Why are we here? Why is there a picnic set up outside? Why did these guys go to the DR this past summer? I want to know why. We need to feel it in our bones. And at Grace Church, um, it'll be on the screen, our, our vision is glorifying God by making disciples through Christ-centered worship, community, service, and mission. And we say this every year, and I say every year, I don't really care if you memorize that. I mean, it's great, you should. I don't care if you do. I care far more that we as a church live it out. Motivation and movement. Grace Church, glorifying God is our motivation. And making disciples is the movement. And there's a lot of different motivations we can have as a church, but there's only one that's going to light a fire in us that the world can't put out, and it's God's glory. I want to show this to you from God's Word in an often overlooked passage in Exodus 33, and then see how the Word connects that to the Great Commission in Matthew 28 
and applies to us here at Grace Church. We're going to see motivation that leads to movement. And then next week, we'll look at how that is going to happen here at Grace Church. So let's go. I know I'm on the clock. I know you're all going to start smelling burgers in a few minutes. We've got a team working hard out there, and then you're gone. So let's go. But, but before we start reading Exodus 33, I want to take two minutes just to catch us up on the story. What happened coming up to Exodus chapter 33? What's the context of this dialogue we're going to see between Moses and God? So the major events in Exodus have already happened at this point. You're familiar with the really kind of major stories in Exodus. God called the man named Moses at the burning bush. The ten plagues were put onto Egypt where God's people were enslaved. God's people were let go by Pharaoh from slavery. They crossed the Red Sea as Pharaoh sent an army after them to chase them to the promised land. Those are the well-known events of Exodus. But then after that, it starts to kind of trail off what happens. And basically, what happens is usually not good. You see, all the while, even after being miraculously saved from slavery, there are these low-grade grumblings and rumblings amongst the Israelites. Anytime they get hungry and they get tired, they start wondering, man, why did we leave Egypt at all? We kind of had it good back there. At least we were eating three meals a day. And then God gives Moses the Ten Commandments on two tablets at the top of a mountain, along with these detailed instructions on how to build a tabernacle. And so he was on top of the mountain. Moses was on top of the mountain for an extended period of time, and the Israelites get a little restless while waiting. So Exodus 32, the chapter just before the one we're going to read, stunningly, shockingly, they decide, man, maybe Moses isn't coming back. I don't know if we can trust that guy. We got, we got to take action ourselves, and they conspire to make their own God, made in their own image out of gold, so they can worship that God. Maybe that God will save them. And specifically, it's this golden calf idol. And Moses' right-hand man is his brother Aaron, who is supposed to be overseeing the people. And this man, Aaron, he has some good moments in Exodus. He's Moses' mouthpiece. He seems to be a good leader for the most part. But let's put it this way. It's just not a good time to be named Aaron (laughs) after reading Exodus 32. He hears their grumblings, and does he shut him down, say, no, Moses is talking to God, he'll be back. He goes, um... Okay, how about this? You guys bring me your jewelry, and then Aaron is the one who makes the stinking golden calf. Like, are you serious? And they begin worshiping this idol, and Moses comes down from the mountain, and he is righteously furious. And he smashes the tablets that contain the Ten Commandments on the ground, and he goes like, Aaron, what happened, brother? Like, what is going on? And Aaron gives the worst response in the Bible. Okay, literally, you can read it in verse 24 of chapter 32. He goes, goes, Moses, Moses, it wasn't my fault. They were begging for it. They gave me all this jewelry. We just threw it into the fire, and this calf came out. (laughs) And Moses is just like, okay. He's got to go back and talk to God. There's some immediate punishments kind of put out. But he goes back to the Lord, 
And in all seriousness, in Exodus 33, we see just how serious that was to worship another God above the only God. And God says to Moses and to all the people of Israel, you guys go on up to the promised land. I'm not coming with you. Wish I could spend more time there, but God says, I can't go. If I did, I would consume you because of your sin. And Israel hears this, and they are terrified. And God summons Moses to the tent of meeting alone. He goes, we're going to have a chat one-on-one. And that's where we're going to pick it up in verse 12 of chapter 33. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? I want to unpack this passage very quickly here before we start talking about us in the church today. Um, Because Moses, like Aaron, has uh, high highs and low lows in his life, but this one might be the highest high. And while the primary application always of Moses, when we read the Bible, say, how does this point us to Christ first, there are some secondary applications that we should pay attention to and model. Number one, Moses depended on God's presence. So, Mo- so God says, um, go on, Moses, you can lead the people to the promised land. I'm not going with you. And so does Moses kind of go, whew, we dodged a bullet there. He could have really just ended this there, and now he gets to go. Moses gets to be the guy. God's out of the picture. It's only Moses. Is Moses excited about this? No. He's in panic mode. He goes, Lord, you told me you were coming with me, and now you're saying you're not. But you're also saying, I found favor in your sight. How can I have favor if you're not coming with us? You see, Moses knew that the promised land without God is the cursed land. And the Israelites without the presence of God would be finished. Pay attention here. Moses recognizes the most horrifying thing God can do is let people go about their own lives without his presence. The most terrifying response God has to man's sin is not him inflicting condemnation on us. The most horrifying response is God saying, okay, go ahead. It's all you. Theologians call it the passive wrath of God. You see, heaven without God is hell. The promised land without God is cursed. And a church without God's presence is nothing but a country club. Israel had a leader in Moses who knew they could do nothing apart from the presence of God. So you want a sign of a good spiritual leader? You want to know what that looks like in your home or in your church, in your neighborhood? How do I lead people spiritually? It starts with knowing you will go nowhere without the presence of God. 
And we are fully dependent on that. It's in a proverb we saw this past summer. The heart of, plan, heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Number two, Moses interceded for God's people. So Moses pleased before God. And God, if you notice, paying attention, verse 14, he seemingly says, okay, fine. <laughs> verse 14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. So, okay, all good, right? Not quite. The you, God says there in the Hebrew, is a singular you. Moses, I will go with you. My presence will be with you. Which is why Moses gives a second plea in verse 16, saying, listen, if you're not going to come with me, I and your people, then we got nothing. You need to come with us. Show me your ways. How will we live? So let's see what happens. Verse 17 to 23. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. Verse 19, And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim, you before, will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is where God, in his sovereign grace, chooses to answer Moses' prayer. In verse 17, he said, Okay, I'll go. It's a big moment, not only in this individual story, but in the entire Bible, because we see in Exodus 33 the shape of the gospel start to take form. See, the Old Testament is a beautifully unified with the New Testament in every single way. It's one story. Your Bible is one story with redemptive themes throughout. Because what just happened there? Think about what just happened there. God chooses to save his people from their righteous divine wrath through a mediator. Moses interceded for his people, and Israel was not saved because they were so great. They just made a golden calf. But they're saved because Moses interceded for them and found favor in God's sight. Now, this doesn't mean he changed God's mind. God doesn't change his mind. It doesn't mean God was kind of indecisive and Moses was able to manipulate him. But rather, God chose to use Moses' intercession to bring about his perfect, eternal, and redemptive will. You see, of all the great things Moses does, man, he brought people across the Red Sea, he brought them out of Egypt, of all the great miracles in Exodus, this is Moses' highest moment. The Israelites being saved in Exodus 33 from God's wrath is salvation through grace. They did nothing to earn it, but God chose to bestow his grace upon them through the person of Moses. And this is the heartbeat of your Bible. The act of God's people being saved from God by God. Saved from God's wrath, rightly due to them. By God's grace, freely given to them. This is the gospel in Exodus 33. We'll come back to this in a bit, but Moses isn't done. Because in verse 18, after getting what he requested, Moses wanted more. And he says, please show me your glory. 
Charles Spurgeon called this the greatest request ever made of God by man. Show me your glory. Glory literally means weight. God's glory is the full weight of his divine being, the fullness of all that he is. And Moses recognized this would be the supreme motivation for all that they would do, to see and look upon the glory of God. God, please show me your glory. Nothing is going to move him like God's glory would. And God's request, answer to this request, yes and no. I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim my name. And then a line that kind of screams of his sovereignty, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So I will do this, but, Moses, you can't see my face. You see, nobody can see my face and live. And God, obviously, he's not talking about literal body parts. God does not have a body but he's using physical terms that we would understand to describe a spiritual truth. We can't handle all of God's glory. He said, if all my fullness passed before you, you would die. Because while Moses was a type of Christ, he was still a sinful man himself. We'll come back to this in a moment, but take note. The primary motivation for Moses was God's glory and goodness. Not his own well-being, not making much of himself. Church, take careful note. Last part of the passage we're going to read. Exodus 34, verses 1 through 5. Let's see what happens next. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen all throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses, Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Third, Moses revealed... God's pathway to obedience. One of the major themes throughout Scripture that we already saw was salvation by grace, and another one is seen here in Exodus 34. It could probably be summed up in the phrase, grace precedes law. You see, God saved Israel from his wrath through a mediator in Moses, and then God commands Moses to remake the tablets of stone that contain the Ten Commandments, the law of God. And if you read carefully, the first time they did it, God provided the tablets. And now he says, now you bring the tablets, Moses. You broke the first ones. Interesting why he would say that. Can't have time to go into why, but it's in there. But the underlying theme is that what you will never see in Scripture, you will never see in Scripture God saying, okay, guys, obey these things, and if you obey them, I'll save you in the end. But rather, the theme all throughout Scripture is rather you are saved by grace. Now, obey these things. You know, Tim Keller is well known for articulating the distinction in this way. He says, all religions of the world say, I obey, therefore I am accepted. The gospel says, 
I'm accepted, therefore I obey. And there might be nothing more important to realize about the gospel than that. God was really serious about the law. He's very serious about obedience, which is why right after telling Moses that he will show him his glory, he instructs him to go write down the law and begin teaching it to Israel. He's very passionate about obedience, but it's obedience as a result of being saved and not the reason for it. Grace precedes law. So that's the flow. wish I could spend like eight more weeks on Exodus 33 and 34, maybe someday. But what we just unpacked provides us at Grace Church a blueprint for what our vision needs to be. And when I say that, I'm not saying, hey, this is a connection I found in my office. I'm saying, I think this is a connection Scripture makes in itself. Exodus 33 just showed us motivation that leads to movement. God revealing his glory and grace, fueling Israel to go to the promised land, walking in holiness. Now, if you keep reading, Israel is going to struggle with this. Israel ultimately would fail to obey this vision, but it's not because something was wrong with the vision. You hear me? The pathway was clear. Motivation that leads to movement. But Israel's failure kept pointing ahead to something more that was coming, leading up to the birth of a Jewish baby boy named Jesus. And listen carefully how John introduces Jesus. On the screen, John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Look, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus would go on to be baptized by John the Baptist. And at his baptism, the Spirit would descend from heaven unto Jesus, and the Father will say, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Reminding of us what we just read in Exodus 33, when he told Moses, For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. But what Moses could not see, God in his fullness of his glory, we can see in the coming of his Son, Jesus. The word became flesh, and we have seen his glory. Uh, there's an author named David Mathis. He writes of this moment. He says, with Jesus, the lowliest Christian has already seen more of God's glory than Moses did on the mountaintop. We can so often be like, man, if I was just Moses, I, would, I, I, I could totally, like, if I just saw God's glory, that would do it for me. And Moses can't even see what you see. And that now on this side of the cross, we see Jesus. And that Jesus will live the life that we could not live. He will follow that law perfectly. And as a fulfillment of God's redemptive plan for all of creation, he will be the ultimate mediator between God and sinners. Jesus intercedes for you. And when he dies on the cross and he gives his life, which, by the way, Moses did not have to do, but Jesus, by his death, sin would be atoned for, salvation offered to all who would believe in him. This is salvation by grace. It is all over your Bible. It's in Exodus 33, and it all points to Jesus. 
Jesus is the true and better Moses. The Apostle Paul will connect these dots between Moses and Jesus in 2 Corinthians 4. Again, listen carefully for how he words it on the screen. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Church, did you hear that? You want to talk vision? We proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In Christ, we overcome the blindness of sin that have kept us from seeing God's glory, from choosing our glory over his. We look at those Israelites and that, that moron Aaron in the Old Testament, and we go, golden calf, really? But we have our own idols. We have our own things that we put before God. And we're no better because it's not a golden calf. It might be another person. It might be power. It might be sex. It might be money or success. But in Christ, we are saved from God by God. And Jesus Christ is the ultimate answer to the bold request, please show me your glory. He did, and he sent you Jesus. And this remains the best request we can make of God. Church, if you're here this morning and you're running on fumes, you feel like you're just tired, you can't even explain why, and the world's just kind of closing in and crushing you, and everybody else seems to be doing fine, but you're just feeling the burden. If you're desperate, this is the most powerful prayer you can pray. Please show me your glory. If you have somebody in your life or you just don't know how to pray for them, they're going through it, man. They're in the ringer, and they're like, oh, it's just happening again and again. And how do I pray for them? How am I there for them? This is the best prayer you can pray for them. That God would show them his glory. And draw them close to himself. That God would show them more of Jesus and reveal him in a big way. This is the weight of glory. It's the highest motivation in one's life to make much of him. It's the deepest motivation for a church that's going to consist of God's people. And so when we say at Grace Church, our, our statement starts with glorifying God, that's because God's glory is at the center of all things. That's our motivation because there is no other good motivation. That will compare to the riches of his glory. And so it's not a churchy phrase. It's not just for your bulletin or for the website. It's a phrase that captures the heartbeat of why we do what we do. But give me two minutes because we're not done. Almost, but not yet. We've seen motivation. Now let's see the movement. In Exodus 33, the motivation of seeing God's glory led to the movement of making and proclaiming God's law in the Ten Commandments. So what's our movement? Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our motivation, 
glory of God in Jesus Christ. Our movement, make disciples of all nations. What's a disciple? One who believes in the finished work of Jesus Christ to forgive our sin by faith. And then one who is being taught to observe all that he has commanded us. To be a disciple is to be saved by grace and then to grow in grace by walking in obedience to God's commandments. And Jesus, at one point in his ministry, hearing all this teaching, one teacher goes up to him and goes, all right, give me the greatest commandment. Just boil it down for me. There's a lot out there. What do I got to do? And Jesus says, love your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Go back and read the Ten Commandments later today. The first four are about loving God. The last, last six are about loving your neighbor. And the whole law could be summed up in the phrase, love God and love your neighbor. This is our movement. Showing people Christ and then teaching them to walk in his ways by loving God and loving your neighbor. Glorifying God by making disciples. This is why we gather. This is our vision. How does it happen next week? <laughs> Let's pray.